This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel and Parliament's back. There's going to be an emergency debate on the vaccine rollout this afternoon. And my question is, will that change anything? My take is that the Liberal government is trying to pin all the problems on the cutback of the Pfizer order, when in fact, my take And I believe that we never had much uh, in the way of early shipments to begin with. And here in Ontario, the provincial government is under fire for the way they've been rolling out the vaccine, specifically focusing on healthcare workers rather than the most vulnerable long-term care residents themselves. And speaking of Doug Ford, he's going to be at the airport this afternoon calling for more travel restrictions, which seems to be his go-to when there's criticism of how his team is handling other things. But that is a big question. Uh, Do we have to put more restrictions on travel? And how much of the problem of these new variants are people coming in from other countries? Uh, By the way, Israel, for example, has closed its airport for at least a few days. It's not even allowing its own citizens back. Uh, And also, Uh, Speaking of the provincial government, there's a new report that says that it has been sitting on $6.4 billion of federal pandemic aid. And of course, there's that whole Buy American thing from the new president. Uh, Let me give the numbers out. If you would like to express your views on these things, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Souza, former Minister of Finance for Ontario and former Liberal MPP, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. Good afternoon, everybody. Hi, Libby. Hey, Libby. Good afternoon. Hi, Libby. Okay. Uh, let us begin with Charles and the emergency debate on the vaccine rollout. Uh, is, what is the use of it? <laughs> you know, I know Mr. Anand, Anita Anand, has been in this procurement phase since last summer, securing the contracts, proceeding to do what you had to do, even prior to the vaccine being available. And she did so with all of the providers and all the pharma, big, pharma, uh, big pharma companies that were engaged in the process. So they did secure, simultaneously as did other countries, the need for the vaccines, and they all tried to get ahead of it. But you're right. I mean, notwithstanding what the prime minister has said, the EU is playing tough, and they've aided the procurement and the development of these vaccines, and they're telling their producers, you've done it at home, we want it first. And um, it's, it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, I'm sure in the end, we'll all have the vaccines. It's just a matter of who's getting it first. It well, appears the EU is getting it first. Charles, I, I have to say, yes, she started in the summer, but that was late. She started after other people. She started after we had that little adventure with the Chinese company, CanSino, who ended up, uh, like, we were supposed to have clinical trials. I mean, I don't think their vaccine is particularly good, but uh, they, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a an okay for radio word on what they did no, to I, us. Uh, but I, they did I, that I'm to us. Be, you know, and uh, the government was... I, I'm trying to be polite, too, but... Okay. Okay. What we have is we do have signed contracts. They exist. The, the The deal is done. So the requirements for those producers to provide the vaccines to Canada now exists. It exists with other countries around the world. The fact that they're prioritizing certain countries over others, that's outside of the contract negotiation that Anita has put forward. Uh, I'm, so regardless I'm not so of the timing, sure, if they were done, they have been done. Right? Well, th- yeah, but the delivery dates were never that early for our supplies. I mean... Even 
at the very beginning, and I'll move it over to John, which shocked me here in Ontario, is that the the prescribed time for vaccinating 80-year-olds uh, and above in the community was something like April. John. Yeah, no, Libby, I think it's important to note that we all want, you know, the vaccines to be out here and, and everybody to be vaccinated as quick as possible and, and whatnot. But I think the challenge here, and this is the, one of the weaknesses of this government, the Liberal government in Ottawa, which is, I think, during the whole debate about vaccines and when companies were still doing their trials and all this kind of stuff, you saw what was happening in the States with their Operation Warp Speed and how they were progressing in other countries, not only the U.S., but other countries in Europe. And and I thought, I, I think Canada was was kind of, sort of found flat-footed on this. I think it wasn't until the opposition, and, and not just the Conservatives, but others, were putting pressure on the Prime Minister to get give us a bit of a timeline. You know, have you ordered vaccines? How many have you ordered? When are we going to get them? And if you recall, there was a time just before the holidays when you were hearing from four or five different ministers, all of whom were giving different timelines. Some were saying, oh, we expect everybody to be vaccinated by the summer. Others were saying, we're not, gonna, we're not sure we're going to get vaccines by March or April. So there was this confusion, I think, that sort of led to some of the problems. And I think what happened was the the pressure on the prime minister to get some doses before before year end um, caused him to, cu- to cut some deals with Pfizer and others. So we saw a very limited supply of vaccines that came to us. And, and thankfully it did. And, and thankfully some some long term care workers and, and, uh, and health care workers were getting vaccinated. But then, you know, then there was this confusion about, well, Pfizer has, is going to stop production. Oh, and by the way, Canada is affected by that. So it's causing this problem. And, and, and it was exacerbated as well. When, when the prime minister was pointing fingers and saying, well, it's the province's fault. They're not disseminating the, inform- the vaccines fast enough. Uh, and well, then, and of they course, weren't. the fingers turned on him and said, well, wait a second. If you gave us more, we would send out more. So there was this massive confusion. And I think this is a weak spot for the prime minister. Well, yeah, except I have to say that, you know, they're all right. Uh, that I think that the, the federal government, uh, they had a bit of fail in, in getting the vaccines here to begin with in a timely way, let's say, and, uh, the provinces in, in rolling it out. And Karen at this point, and, and Charles very rightly pointed out, it looks like the EU is getting tough and they might, you know, even with the cutbacks, they might not let those things be exported. So um, what what's the point of an emergency debate, Karen? Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. I mean, that ship has sailed. The, the, irrespective of all the failures of communication around the vaccine and the fact that it was touted as the great hope to end the pandemic and people were hopeful and they got their hopes up. And then there was, uh, you know, the discussion about, you know, do we hold back the second shot or do we give vaccinate more people with the first shot and then delay the length of time between the second shot? That was actually our early warning signal there was a, tr- a problem because we wouldn't have been having those discussions if we knew that we had a guaranteed supply of vaccine. And so once those discussions started is actually really when we knew we were in trouble, only we didn't realize collectively that we were in trouble. And so now having a debate, emergency debate on the vaccine is, is actually, from my perspective, too little too late. What we immediately need to shift to is how are we going to use these rapid tests? because they have not been utilized in a way that has been strategically beneficial for any province, except maybe Nova Scotia, who's finally coming out to say, you know what, these are actually a good idea, and healthcare professionals don't need to do it. And so that's a discussion we need to pivot to. We are going to get the vaccine when we get the vaccine. It's been demonstrated that it's actually out of our control. As much as premiers and, and politicians and, and the pr- prime minister wants to bellyache that we're in control of that, we're actually not. We've signed contracts, we've paid money, and now we're on a list. And we're going to get the vaccine when we get the vaccine. But we can't, but what we do know now is that waiting for the vaccine does not mean that that's when we're going to reopen or that's when we're going to get the kids back to school or that's when we're going to have safety in long-term care facilities or for hospital workers. So what do we do now? And that is the question. Everything else is a diversion. That is the question that needs to be answered. What are we going to do now? Okay, so uh, Charles, what about increasing travel restrictions? We just heard the Prime Minister say we have among the toughest in the world. I'm not sure that's exactly right. But do we need more travel restrictions? The Premier is going uh, to the airport this afternoon. Presumably he's going to say he doesn't understand why they don't uh, put more travel restrictions in. What's your take? Well, well, the Premier's message today is going to be a lot different than what he gave a year ago today, where he was promoting travel. Yeah, he was saying, "Go ahead, take your vacations to the south, and you know this thing will pass." Obviously, that's not the case, and he'll he'll be talking tough today. 
and he'll be siding with the prime minister to foster those travel restrictions. Um, I do wonder what's going to happen to our snowbirds in Florida now who are probably wondering when they come home, if they can come home, because talk about being put in hotels or talk about being prohibited from coming back um, will uh, be an issue for many. Okay, you know what? I have to say, Charles, you know, because we we discussed that a lot, and snowbirds were warned also, including from uh, people who actually make their living selling travel insurance, as one of one of my guests that I've had on quite a few times, that they were taking a risk if they went this year. Oh, I'm not defending them. Yeah. I, I have, I have my family and those that um, like to travel to the U.S. have chosen not to for the very reasons that's been explained to all of us. And you're absolutely right. They've taken a risk. They've they decided to do what they want to do now. Now they're at their at the mercy of of the pandemic, frankly, and the virus. Well, uh, on the other hand, those who went early, now it's a different story, uh, got vaccinated there, so. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, those restrictions are necessary. We have to do something because it's obviously uh, not working what we've done to date. And uh, I I, I do appreciate the concerns people are going to have. I do worry about trade and making certain that those priority measures continue uh, and those initiatives continue because that sustains us because we need that supply chain. Okay, so what are you saying? Should we restrict tourist travel? Should we restrict our own citizens from coming home like Israel has done, but why well, do you just for a few days? We're being restricted to go to other countries as it stands, and rightly so. So, um, uh, I mean, I find that those that are in the South don't even see the pandemic the same way we're looking at it because we seem to be more affected than others for some reason. And um, I am I am in favor of trying to put those restrictions in place to avoid uh, uh, putting ourselves at risk. John, your take on that? Well, you know, I think the, the, the Premier has been strong and he's been saying it publicly now for the last little while about, you know, putting pressure on Ottawa to get tougher with respect to to the travel bans and, and, and sort of testings and whatnot from the airport, especially for people that were traveling, not only people traveling out, but people coming back in. And now they're, now they're putting some restrictions on countries that you know, are forcing them that they have to test uh, negative before they can land in, 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 uh, in Toronto or in Canada, quite frankly. So I think that, that there will always be a pressure on that. And I do believe that there is some level of, of um, testing that's happening now, but I don't think the, the follow-through or the follow-up uh, is strict enough. I think that when people land and they're told, you know, uh, they're, they're sort of answer all these questions and they're saying, okay, well, okay, you have to now be in self-isolation for 14 days. There hasn't been for the longest time a follow-up to say, okay, have those people been uh, isolating for 14 days? I think there, there are test pilots that, that the province is looking for the feds to be involved in where the testing would allow for people that when they land, they get, they get sort of rapid tests. And then there's a follow-up in a data bank to say, okay, we, you, you were now going to be you know, followed up on this, make sure you are self-isolating. I think that was the biggest problem for the longest time, but also international travel was just, uh, you know, we all focused on whether or not we can travel back and forth to the U.S., but yet we, people were flying all over the place, as we saw, unfortunately, there's some, there's some political politicians taking flights uh, internationally. And, and I think that was a big mistake, and I think that's caused some of the problems. Uh, Karen, I mean, one of uh, one of the suggestions that I heard was that anybody who lands Canadian or otherwise has to self-isolate at a hotel, a designated hotel at their own expense is is that the right way to go well you know i certainly i can't say it's the wrong way to go because other countries have tried it and been successful with it i you know it's always one of those those issues that you know how do you actually do that midway you know if if we were if we were at the point where we were reopening international flights or reopening the airport we could have made that a condition but now we have you know, I don't even know how many Canadians we have that have already left. And if they're coming home and now we impose this on them without actually understanding what that means to our ability to force them into a hotel. And so there's a lot of, it sounds like a great idea, but it's one of those things that actually, when you go to implement it, it becomes extremely complicated midway through. And, you know, I think John's right that really we have to figure out how to do the rapid testing at the airport. Um, and if we're going to put new rules in place and they have to have a, you know, this is the date that this starts. So if you want to travel on February 1, then know when you come back, here are the things that are going to apply to you. But, you know, as it is, as it's been, it's created such chaos uh, for people trying to travel who want to travel for whatever their reasons, uh, chaos for the airlines, chaos for passengers. 
And so whatever they do, it, it should be done a bit more thoughtfully than a photo op or a press conference. It has to actually be done with some guarantees that it can be implemented and done to the point where as well that the, you know, the airlines are on board to the degree that they can help facilitate the safe passage of people and making sure that we're not bringing strains into the country. But I, I know that it's been a real challenge for all the small businesses and retailers and people that are closed to be washing 64,000 go through Pearson Airport every day coming from places that aren't taking it, maybe that aren't taking the same measures we're taking to control the virus. Do you think, Karen, that uh, Doug Ford is is using this airport thing as a bit of a distraction from his own failings? I, I think that um, focusing on the airport is a bit of a distraction. That being said, I think it is an issue and one that has to be addressed at some point in some way. But, but you know, I, I think that you're right, Libby, and that, you know, there's still outbreaks in long-term care homes. There's still problems with the vaccine. The kids still aren't in school. The small business is still closed. And there seems to be, you know, even though the government had made a commitment that this week they would update the province on some kind of plan about how we might approach reopening, nobody believes that that's coming anytime soon. But at some point, we have to put our thoughts to, okay, how, what are we going to do now? Because all the things that we had relied on aren't actually materializing for us. So now what are we going to do? Because we still have this virus that we need to manage. Charles, there's a report by a left-leaning think tank, the Center for Policy Alternatives, that says that the province is sitting on $6.4 billion of federal pandemic aid money. What do you make of that? Yeah, every budget, every minister, finance, and so forth over the course of every Every budget that I've known always puts a lot of prudence in their system to enable them to at least, uh, in case there's an emergency, or make their numbers better at the end, right? You prop it up, you under-promise and over-deliver as part of the issue. This particular instance, they do have uh, earmarked this money, and it's one of priorities. They have to determine if they want to make their deficit look better uh, next year, or do they use this to fight the cause? And I don't think they're going to have much choice. I mean, the issue is prolonged than they had anticipated. Their prudence measures in the budget have gone out the window. There's no excess money here, right? There, there are massive deficits that have been unheard of. And um, yeah, it, it, they, they, they have to address their issues. And uh, I suspect that if they're going to try to pad the number in order to make their deficit look better, that's they're being called out on it right now. And they won't have... There, there's, there's nothing left. They have to, they have to invest against this fight, and they'll have to do so. But the, the money, as you said, is, is earmarked. They have it. I mean, uh, what would the point be of even sitting on it till now? Because we keep hearing stories from people who haven't get their, got their pandemic top up. People are in need. Like, why would they be doing this? Well, as I said, I, uh, the, the budget always includes some degree of prudence, reserves, uh, contingencies. They have this fund that uh, they likely would have preferred to use to reduce their deficit numbers next year. That's not appropriate. They are now being called out. The money is earmarked. Like right now, there is no money. Right, the the, the Ontario Authority, lending a, a finance authority, borrows a sufficient amount every year to to accommodate their budget forecast. This is in their forecast, so it is a choice. It's one of priorities. Sick leave, all these other measures that were cut back now are trying to be reintroduced. Don't confuse what this money was earmarked for. It's above and beyond those issues. And that is where people are calling them out on saying, hey, we need the support now. We can't wait until next year or until a vaccine is coming. John, are they going to take a hit for this? I don't think so. I, you know, look, there's never going to be enough money and it's never going to be distributed fast enough. But I think that this government has proven over the course of the last year of the pandemic that they have spent a lot of money and have given a lot of money dedicated, of course, never enough to the long-term care facilities, but they've, they've, you know, they've realized that there's a huge problem that's been a systemic problem in that space and they've given money and, uh, and tried to build more, uh, build more facilities and, and give more support to staff in that regard. They've given as much money as they can and, and even more to ensure that they've got PPEs early on. And, and so I, I think that, you know, so yes, they, they, this pandemic has been one like no others. So they've been 
adjusting like everybody else has been. But, you know, to say that this government hasn't been spending enough money or, or money focusing on this, yes. Is it fast enough? Well, maybe not. Is it, is it, should, should we be spending more? Well, everybody wants to spend more money, but there's got to be some level of, of, you know, prudence here with respect to how and when and where they send the money. And I think this government has done the best they can with respect to sending money and giving money to the areas that they need to. And they've adjusted every time there's been a new found area of weakness or of, of you know, lagging uh, behind other areas, uh, the premiers jumped on it and said, okay, look, let's focus on this area. Let's put some money uh, specifically towards, you know, this particular issue when it came to vaccines, when it came to finding out some, some of the other, uh, other, other areas within the pandemic that they needed to focus on. They've always done it. So there will always be critics, Libby, and, and you know, and, and that's par, par, for the, par for the course. But, you know, this, this government has spent a lot of money and has directed a lot of money to try to fix this pandemic or at least curb uh, the issues as, as much as they possibly can. Uh, Karen, do you agree with that as a small business person? And by the way, uh, Trudeau today just announced uh, another program for small business people for uh, uh, no interest loans. Uh, uh, do, you, do you agree that the province is uh, dispensing the money as fast as it should? Well, I mean, in certain sections, yes. I mean, not, not in all. And, um, you know, and again, like giving an interest-free loan for a period of time to an, a, a business that's already incurred quite a bit of debt and is already leveraged isn't, I, I don't want to say it's not helpful, but it, to be honest, it's not actually that helpful. And so, you know, I think that from the perspective of if, if, this, if the government was hanging on to the money because they thought they were going to have to open up a number of, let's say, vaccination clinics, and they were holding on to that money for that purpose. And it wasn't, to Charles's point, technically earmarked, but it's in reserve for a purpose that has not yet been realized, then I think that can be explained and people would understand that. Um, but it, 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 it's something the government is going to have to explain because the rest of us are sitting here and we're like wondering, okay, like, what, what? <laughs> what what's happening? And if you have money in reserves and you have issues with... Um, in every like in, in so many sectors, what's happening? I'm going to take a couple of calls. We've got Catherine in Toronto. Hi, Catherine. Oh, hi. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yeah, I have uh, an odd question. I think uh, I've heard varying reports from absolute sources that are reliable, supposedly, regarding people who have been vaccinated either with a single boost shot or both. And the reports say they're not sure if these vaccinated people can, in fact, carry the virus and spread it. Now, Yeah, that's true. We don't know. So what are they telling people who have been vaccinated? Because my feeling is that if I'm vaccinated, I'm going to feel, oh, I'm free. I'm home and dry. I can go out and about. But that may not be the case. That is not the case until we get herd immunity, which is a long way off. Catherine, thanks for your call. Let's go to Barry in North York. Hi, Barry. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Yeah. Good <laughs> afternoon. Um, I just have two quick points to make. Number one, I believe it was good old Dr. Sly that on your radio program months ago had said, if we locked it down like we were supposed to, we did nothing that we didn't really have to do, in one month, we wouldn't be have it controlled. It would be gone. And so we wouldn't have to be dealing with these problems. So when we think, oh, should I go here? Should I go there? Should I do this? Even if you're just going to visit a friend. I don't visit anybody anymore. Um, even in my bubble. It's just not worth the, the chance. So think of that, and we'd be a lot better off. And the other thing, a point I wanted to make was... Not too long ago on the news, I heard a doctor say, if you think it's safe to fly, think about this. You can't physically distance, wash your hands, and mask yourself out of the the danger of flying. He says, it's just not safe. Uh, well, yeah, some people actually disagree with the actual flying and they say there's more risk in the airport, but um, there's no question that some people are bringing it in. Barry, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Have a good afternoon. Thanks. Okay, uh, we're uh, in the home stretch, so I'm going to give everybody about 30 seconds, say, um, starting with Karen, what would you like to leave us with this week? I would like to see, <laughs> not to be a broken record, 
But there really has to be a pivot to rapid testing. And it has to be done broadly. It has to be done um, in new and creative ways. It has to be done for schools, for long-term care facilities, for all kinds of in the community so that we can start to identify where we're having outbreaks before we have them. And we can't rely on the vaccine. We need another strategy. I mean, we will rely on the vaccine in the longer term, but in the shorter term, we need we need that stopgap strategy to help us manage through. John? Yeah, I would I would pick up on, on or at least agree with, with Karen on, on rapid testing, something that we need to be focused on. Of course, vaccines as well. Let's make sure that we get some of the other ones that are coming down the pipe. And we get some contracts with those. But I also want to sort of spend a little bit of time or just a couple of seconds on uh, on sort of President Biden and some of the protectionist moves that he's made early on in his term with respect to Buy America, uh, the Keystone Pipeline, and some of those issues. I think the prime minister is going to have a huge amount of, of uh, challenges ahead to try to work with this, prime, this president, uh, knowing that, you know, he might, he might get along with him better than he did with, with President Trump. But there's some early signs that, that Canada is in, is in some trouble with respect to some of the policies that are coming down the pike there. Okay. And Charles, I'll give you the last word. Thank you, guys. Um, yeah, I think a more effective testing would be appropriate, as Karen and John have both indicated. Uh, the vaccines are going to be problematic uh, for two reasons. One, the EU is playing tough. But to John's point, a Buy America policy, I'm hoping that it will be more of a Buy in North America policy to enable Canada's engagement and, and things going forward. But we'll see. I mean, the federal government's priority is vaccines and then jobs, try to stimulate economic growth. The provincial governments, and certainly in Ontario, is trying to ensure that they balance all of these initiatives in an effective way, and they're scrambling. And uh, it's unfortunate that the two aren't talking effectively, especially when it comes to earmarking some of this money for the purposes of trying to fight the vaccine. I'm hoping it'll, it'll improve, but time will tell. Okay, thank you so much to our strategy panel, Karen Stintz, John Capobianco, and Charles Souza. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, guys. Bye. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, one of our periodic check-ins with Toronto Mayor John Tory. We'll see how he is feeling about everything today when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now I would like to welcome Toronto Mayor John Tory for one of his periodic check-ins. Hello, how are you? Fine, thank you. How are you, Libby? I'm fine, thank you. Now, in the briefing yesterday, Dr. Eileen Davila said that she was taking the situation at Roberta House in Barrie as a wake-up call and uh, instructing the long-term care homes under your jurisdiction here in Toronto to double up on infection control and things like that. Um, I, I'm just wondering how confident are you that the long-term care homes are prepared? I've been talking off the record to people who participate in those health tables, and they see Roberta House as, quote, the canary in the coal mine. Well, I guess I can speak more, uh, you know, um, uh, with, with more confidence about the 10 uh, long-term care residences that we, the City of Toronto, own and operate. Uh, and I can just tell you with those, it has been the case uh, all the way through that we have tried to set a higher standard. I think it's generally acknowledged when they do most of these examinations of uh, what's gone on both pre and, and during the pandemic that uh, these uh, residences of ours uh, set, as you would expect, a higher standard. We moved very early on in the pandemic for example, to change the staffing model so that you did not have people, you know, coming and going, uh, working in different uh, homes. And we did that by giving them more secure employment and, and paying them uh, more, paying them more in the context of guaranteeing them that kind of compensation. And so I can only say that with respect to the steps Dr. Davila has now requested, which is that everybody go back and re-examine everything they're doing in the context of disinfection and all those different things, that our homes uh, will be uh, doing that and will will achieve some results. The rest of the industry, I don't know. And I don't mean to be critical, but I think uh, history has just shown that, uh, you know, the city run or the non Nonprofit homes, generally speaking, seem to have a better record, perhaps because they're not trying to focus on making a profit at the same time of making these kinds of improvements and making them faster because they have some latitude to do that. 
would you lend your voice? There is a move underfoot. A lot of people say that, you know, once this is over, we should get rid of for-profit long-term care. Would you uh, join that particular fight? Well, I don't want to, you know, reach a conclusion. You know, this kind of thing it sounds like sloganeering, and, and I don't believe in that. I believe you have to have thoughtful discussion of these kinds of issues. But if you ask me, we've got to end up in one of two places to achieve a better result than we have, because we've been badly letting down our seniors and their families, our frail seniors. And that is, we either have to end up with a much more highly regulated industry, and highly regulated includes how much of a return they're able to earn if they're a private sector business, um, and uh, a much more highly regulated, and although, you know, Know, theoretically, the regulations are in place now to provide for a standard of care that should be very high, or we have to move to a nonprofit model. And, and it's a complicated matter. It shouldn't be the subject of sloganeering. If you move to an entirely nonprofit model, then what do you do you know, about all the people that have invested what I'll call private money you know, into the existing system? But there are clearly huge flaws in the existing system in terms of the standard of care that is not being delivered to uh, the frail seniors that are in those residences. And it is, uh, you know, a largely public responsibility simply because a lot of the money to operate those residences, as you know, comes from the taxpayers. So the current system is broken. Um, I certainly think a different model is going to be required that doesn't just go back to saying, well, let's just, you know, count on the private sector operators to do a better job. Um, and uh, so I don't want to just say I, I picked a model, but I will say a big change is needed. Uh with regards to the vaccine rollout, and uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, long-term care in Toronto, they've all been vaccinated, but uh, the general, uh, Rick Hillier, has come under fire because we were the last to pivot back and actually vaccinate residents, uh, and he said, oh, we couldn't because of the Pfizer, but uh, as it turns out, other provinces could. Do you have anything to say about that? No, because, you know, I think General Hillier has, uh, you know, Ontario is so big and the task of, uh, of, in, of inoculating all of the long-term care residents and staff in this province is so big that, you know, I, I don't want to be critical of what he's done. I think the real issue here is uh, supply or lack of supply. And that is something that is being rectified, but it's caused a hiccup, to say the least. Um, and I would just say, look, as long as people understand what the responsibilities are here, the federal government supplies the vaccine, the province sets the rules as to who gets injected when, and the cities uh, help to carry out that task by having, you know, clinics and this kind of thing. And uh, I, I will just say from the city standpoint, uh, we are ready. Uh, so when the supply is adequate, we're going to be able to roll out on a schedule that will be more set by the province uh, what clinics are needed. Uh, they will be in places across the city that are accessible, and we will run them uh, well because that's the kind of thing we're good at. We have the, the experience from uh, flu vaccination clinics of being able to, you know, understand how this is done. And so we will uh, simply be ready to do our job when the time comes. Uh, what about people in the community? I've been hearing from older people in the community, people over 80. Uh, they were not in line to get vaccines until maybe April. And who knows what is going to be now? Are you worried about them? And uh, have you thought about how you might handle it? I mean, my thought is that if we're trying to keep the hospitals clear, you want to keep those people healthy. Yeah, in fact, uh, for those people in those groups of people that are, you know, seniors, uh, and, they'll, and as you say, they will start with the 80 plus, and then go down to 75 plus and 70 plus and so on. Uh, the, the actual intention is that most of those people would receive their injection from their doctor, from their family doctor, uh, more so than at a hospital or a clinic. Uh, the clinics will be set up for specialized groups of people, especially those who are harder to, uh, to reach and may not have a family doctor, for example. Um, with respect to the prioritization of those people, I can only say that's a decision the province uh, has made. They started with the very highest risk people, namely long-term care residents and, you know, the frail elderly and the people who care for them because those people are exposed every day and can also bring the virus uh, into those long-term care residences. But, um, you know, the next groups to be dealt with will be some of the older groups that are a bit more vulnerable. And in the meantime, I know this, uh, it isn't an answer. I mean, I think we all would wish that the supply of vaccine would happen faster so that we could step up and get the doctors going and 
and get these injections into people's arms. But in the meantime, uh, the best advice I can offer to those people, whether they're 80 or 70 or 60, uh, is to follow the public health advice and stay home and stay safe. I mean, wear a mask, uh, you know, only socialize with people that you live with. I think people are bored hearing all these rules, but they're still really important, more important than ever while we wait for the vaccines. And I have a feeling maybe some of that vaccine supply will get accelerated just as it was slowed down the last couple of weeks, but that's just speculation and we'll have to see. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, You uh, and other uh, GTHA mayors have come out uh, asking the province for paid sick days. And this, as we've just learned, that the province is sitting on $6.4 billion of federal pandemic relief. What's your reaction to that? Well, my reaction is that I'm puzzled at the fact that neither of the governments have really stepped up and said we will take overall responsibility for this. I realize it may be in part a partnership between the two of them to look after these people. But if you think about it for a minute, it just isn't right that anybody who is working in our society here in Ontario or Toronto um, should be afraid to go and get tested because they're afraid of losing their paycheck. I mean, we have all kinds of programs, even when we're not in pandemic times, to sort of support people when they, uh, you know, when they fall ill or when they become unemployed. And in this case, it is the it is a fact that there are people who uh, don't go and get tested, have symptoms, go to work with symptoms, and in fact, they are COVID positive and spread it to other people in their workplace. We're having lots of workplace uh, outbreaks. So to me, when, when all this needed is for the application process for a federal benefit to be simplified, for the benefit to flow to people faster so they're not expected to be without pay for two weeks, and for the amount maybe to be slightly increased, there are billions of dollars sitting somewhere, but it's not billions that are needed to look after this. We are talking about people during the pandemic who test positive, not millions of people who would be doing this for the next five years. So I just think it's um, very puzzling, to say the least, and it's actually very disappointing and frustrating that we haven't had one of these two governments step up and say, we're either going to take this responsibility on together or that one or the other of them will take it on. It's just not right, and it is contributing to the continued spread of this virus, frankly. Okay. Um, I want to talk about your relations with the province. Uh, are they fraying a bit? We have this case of the Heritage Foundry in the Donlands, uh, which uh, they started demolition on with a um, um, municipal zoning order. Uh, one of many municipal zoning orders. They didn't consult the city. They don't have to. Uh, uh, but it, it, it seems kind of disrespectful. They've also started expropriating land for the Ontario line without um, consulting. And, and this is exactly the point that I've made, Libby, which is it, is it isn't about those two cases, although those are both cases that, you know, should involve a degree of consultation with the city and the public. Um, it's about the principle, because we've got probably... I'll pick a number, a hundred different projects of different kinds to do with transit construction and so on that we have to work through together over the next, you know, couple of years. And I'm delighted all that, that activity is going on, including the construction of a lot of affordable housing. But I don't care what powers they have to pass which orders. Um, they're still doing something in our city. And we still have a city government here and we have communities of people who live here uh, who need to be consulted on these things. And it needn't bog us down for months, as they imply sometimes. So I've had that discussion this past week with the Premier and with the Minister of Housing. And I think we've come to an understanding that it is not going to work for people to be surprised by getting expropriation notices in the mail or seeing a wrecking ball swinging without really knowing you know, that it was going to happen. And so I'm hopeful we can arrive at something that will be consistent with the kind of partnership we've had during the pandemic. It's been good. Um, and uh, I will just tell you that if that doesn't happen, the city will have to assert itself. <clears throat> Pardon me, and I as mayor will assert myself in whatever way necessary to make sure that they get the message that this is our city and we respect a partnership with the province. We respect some of the powers they have, though I think they should be used sparingly. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't consult the city in, uh, in, in uh, which these projects are taking place. Okay, getting tough with the bromance. Now, of, of course, I have to ask about the project that uh, uh, we uh, generally here are not too happy about in Liberty Village, and that is the Parquet. Uh, uh, back in 2018, two parquets were approved with a budget of $350,000. That's back when this was a bustling area with small businesses, restaurants that were thriving, young families. Um, it was delayed. 
And uh, it was supposed to start in the fall. Now it's supposed to start in March. So uh, it, it doesn't seem that that people really, I don't know, uh, know what they want. But in the meantime, this area is dominated by uh, a shelter and a tent city for homeless people and uh, businesses that are failing. So why go ahead with it now? I mean, how will a parquet offset those two things? Well, we're working very hard, and you and I have discussed before the encampments, and I realize we have a slightly different perspective on it. I will tell you that uh, 100 people out of the encampment right close to where you are working um, have been referred by our streets to homes staff uh, to uh, permanent housing, and they've made uh, dozens and dozens of visits to that encampment, uh, and we're having to deal with the struggle of encampments during an emergency that has caused many people to be dislocated. Across the city, we've uh, cleared 1,300 people. When I say cleared, we have uh, moved them to permanent housing and, and cleared out some 80 different encampments, and the one at Liberty Village is a challenge for us. I will just say to you that with respect to the parquet, that is precisely the kind of project we have to move forward with. Uh, the March date, I suspect, has to do just with construction season, and the fact on a day like today, it's difficult to be doing the work on places like this. And difficult to be in an encampment. Uh, well, and- yeah, I, I, of course I understand that, and we're working very hard at that, too. We're doing more on affordable and supportive housing than any city government probably in the history of the city has done, but it's, it's a challenge right now, a big challenge for us. And I will just say to you that I won't back away from the fact we have to treat people with compassion uh, at the same time as we make sure neighborhoods are kept stable and safe. And I can assure you a top priority when the pandemic is, um, you know, receding, which I expect will happen in the spring, will be to get on with projects like this parquet so that we can revitalize places like Liberty Village and the businesses operating within it and the neighborhood itself, uh, because all of those things have been hard hit by the pandemic. And it's been a global emergency. And I think we've done very well as a city trying to deal with it. uh, But uh, there are lots of things to be done uh, as it comes to an end, which we can all hope will happen coincident with those vaccinations uh, a bit later this year. But but I've got to ask you again, how does a parquet, which has some nice benches and planters, how does that offset uh, failing businesses and encampments. I mean, I, I, you know what yeah, I'm you, saying? You see, uh, Libby, I, I don't have the liberty um, that, uh, you know, lots of people do of presenting black and white choices and saying, well, we should take that money and instead do something for business. We're, we're going to be doing some things for business, but and we have been doing lots. We've, we've been helping those businesses get online, for example, 10,000 10, businesses across the city getting online, which has been a lifeline. We've done the Cafe TO program. 800 restaurants across the city got these special cafe on streets and so on, including some in Liberty Village. So I, you know, I would just say to you, I don't have the liberty of making a choice of saying we're either going to do parks, which are deficient in the downtown, especially in, in, in densely populated yep. areas like Liberty Village, or doing something else. Uh, we have to do all of these things, and we will proceed with the parkette because we need open space like that for neighborhoods and families and to help liven up an area to bring business back. Um, and we will also support the business community. We're going to create a small business tax class, um, you know, which is not been done before. The province has now permitted us to do that, which will help them with their taxes uh, and so on. But I, my job involves keeping neighborhoods safe, but also supporting, shelter, uh, you know, sheltering uh, vulnerable people. It involves helping business, but also creating park space to make sure neighborhoods are livable. It involves creating bike lanes, but also making sure traffic can move. It involves keeping taxes low, but still investing more in services for people. Um, it's a very broad-ranging job that involves balancing to be done every single day. I do my best at it, as do my council colleagues and uh, the people get to hold us to account at the time of the next election. So if they don't, you know, like what we're doing, then they can have us, uh, uh, you know, um, encouraged to retire at that time. Um, just before I let you go, can you tell us anything more about this small business property tax class? Well, the province allowed for there to be, we'd been asking for it for years, and the province asked allowed for there to be a special uh, commercial tax class to be created so that you could give uh, uh, extra consideration for small businesses in terms of the magnitude of their tax burden. And so uh, what you have to do in setting up the class is define what a small business is. So we're at work on that now. We're going to go out and consult on that, but it will effectively allow them to pay uh, a, a lesser level of tax. Um, we have been capping their tax increases for about three or four years since I've been mayor now at 10%, which I know is still a lot. Yep. And so uh, this will allow for a different class to be created, as we've done for creative businesses like the artists and so on. And so it's really just a recognition of the fact that these people 
um, you know, are, have borne a special burden during the pandemic and have always borne a special burden because they're smaller. And uh, but they're the lifeblood of a lot of neighborhoods like Liberty Village and many others across uh, the city. And we want to recognize that and treat them accordingly in our tax policy. And these consultations will be posted. In yeah, they'll happen like now, this winter, right away, because the province just allowed us in their recent budget in November to create this small business tax class. So we have to go through the exercise of actually doing it. And we want to make sure we ask both small business people and other people how that should be done so that we don't just do it based on what we think is right. We want to ask business. Okay. That sounds okay. like a plan. Mayor Good. John Tory, thanks so much. Hey, Libby. Thanks a lot. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, the head of the Registered Nurses Association wants to talk about Doug Ford's plan for the vaccine rollout when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, the Premier provided an update on the province's vaccine distribution plan, and their new plan is to administer first doses to all long-term care home residents in Ontario 10 days sooner than plans, which means by next week. So far, only 47,000 nursing home residents have received a first dose. Meanwhile, another 17 or 18,000 have yet to be vaccinated. And here in Ontario, authorities continued to focus on healthcare workers rather than their more vulnerable patients for weeks after other jurisdictions pivoted and began taking the Pfizer vaccine to the homes. But General Rick Hillier, who is in charge of the rollout, isn't accepting any criticism for that. We didn't do any waiting. We worked with Pfizer and Health Canada to make sure we had the protocols laid out for the movement of that vaccine. And those protocols weren't clear to anybody. But in the interim, what we were doing was providing the protection to those healthcare workers and essential caregivers and staff inside of those homes. Because as the medical folks told us, if we could get them vaccinated or the majority of them, that would increase the protection to the residents of those long-term care facilities immensely. Okay, well, for her perspective, let's go to Doris Greenspoon, Chief Executive Officer of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Hi, Doris. Hi, Levy. Thanks for having me back. You're very welcome, Doris. So uh, what's your view of this? Well, it's a bunch of spinning that is going on. Uh, Libby, you had me if at the beginning of the pandemic, you had the, in the middle. We lobby and advocated and begged with evidence. First, the PPEs to nursing homes, which didn't go. They went three weeks or four after the hospitals. On the vaccine, the same issue, Libby. We said first to the residents in the nursing homes, their healthcare workers and their essential care partners. You and I spoke about essential care partners and that the government gets kudos for having integrated them. But the excuse that Pfizer said that me, then, then you have hospitals saying that the general healer said and everybody's been someone else. Listen, it's in, anybody can Google this. In November, Pfizer said their vaccine can be five days of the fridge, and this is why Israel is first, by the way, because they went only with Pfizer, by the way, and the problem living at the core of it is that the vaccines were given to the hospitals to run the show. So not only they gave first to the healthcare providers rather than to the LTCers, but also they gave to accountants, they gave to engineers in the hospital, they gave to IT that is not in the units. They gave to administrators that are not in the unit. They didn't give it only to frontline providers. We could have had, Libby, all the residents already vaccinated, and we would have saved thousands, hundreds of lives, hundreds and hundreds of lives, because the reality is today we have less people dying in nursing homes, not overall, but in nursing homes than before. We have less outbreaks, etc meaning the vaccine is working. So, you know, uh, enough of spinning. Sometimes, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty good at that, when we make a mistake in private life or public life, we need to say we made a mistake and now we are correcting. But that's not what happened. You may remember General Hillier also during the uh, Christmas holiday when they stopped for three days because I don't know why they stopped. The virus didn't stop leaving. 
Uh, it was, well, we didn't think that workers will be able to come and all kinds of excuses. And in fact, three different types of excuses. Well, you enough, know what? That was enough, enough, enough. That was, uh, I think, the only time that he took responsibilities. He well, sort of after, said, after my after bad. We pushed, after we pushed. Yeah. First it was, well, people needed a break. Well, people, you know, we didn't think that people will will come. Well, we didn't think that we have enough people that can deliver the vaccines. Let me tell you this, lady. We are asking government 24 by 7 now. We have the workers. We have primary care nurses, primary care doctors, home care nurses, all ready to roll out the vaccine. The vaccine needs to go back to public health to manage, not to hospitals. There as it is, they're crumbling. It's, it's, it's incredible what's happening. So vaccines, like always, they need to be managed by public health. They okay. are the experts, not let, hospitals. hospitals let let me ask you this. Let, let me ask you this, Doris. So um, are they on track? Because they've promised to get it done by next week. And well, my I hand, just, just a minute. If we were to move 24 by 7, we could be done, in fact, by Wednesday. But we're not going to go... 24 by 7. So, yeah, we will be done by next week. But the lives that are gone, Libby, those are lives, uh, real lives with real families that cannot come back and that could have been prevented. So, moving forward, because we cannot go back, let's make sure that we move 24 by 7. First, completing the residents in nursing homes and their staff and essential care partners, those families that come. Second, Let's move 24 by 7 with any other community rolled out by public health, primary care, and home care. That's the recipe for success. The government, both federal and provincial, has met now with the team from Israel. You know that I lived there for many, many years. I tell you, everything during a pandemic there has been managed by public health and primary care, and the hospitals have been left for what the hospitals are best which is taking care of very sick people. Uh, well, and uh, I was just talking to Mayor John Tory, and he said, when we eventually get vaccines for people in the community who are older, which I'm not holding my breath for, uh, they will be administered in the community. Well, they need to be administered by public health and primary care and home care. Doesn't matter where. In shelters, that's a vulnerable community. In a community complexes where very where the people that are very vulnerable and live in multiple you know generations that's where you need to provide them because that's what is bringing it also to the to the spread in the community we need to target the most vulnerable communities Doris uh, we're basically out of time what would you like to leave us with in 30 seconds to everybody to keep behaving until we get the vaccine. So far, the best line of defense is don't forget the mask, the physical distancing, the washing the hands, and staying home if you do not need to go out. And then we will get this thing more under control. And for the government, not to loosen the rules until we have more people vaccinated, because if not, we will be in a third wave. Take March, third wave. Okay. Doris Greenspoon, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.